Wonderful. Uh, Maureen told me that it's just the beginning. So let's give Maureen and her team a, a big round of applause. Feeling all Narnia-ish again. And uh, i got to be careful what I say, though, because Maureen gets her revenge very, very easily. Last year, if you remember, she covered my pulpit with glitter. And, uh, and I'm still finding glitter everywhere, not even at church. But that's another story. Before we, uh, before we get into the Word of God, I just want to share with you uh, that two new community groups have started in the last couple of weeks. Um, first of all, I don't know if they've already taken their children, but the Hanningbergs, Pete was up here. Is Pete and Jen still in the room? Pete's there. Uh, Pete, can you stand up? You already stood up once. So there's Pete. Um, Pete's community group started a couple of weeks ago, and they've already got eight people. It's like revival. I tell you, eight people, two weeks, who knows what could happen in that house? So, uh, and then we've also got another... Uh, not quite as hip, but a little bit younger group, which would be Matt and Ashley and Dan and Caitlin. Their group, Matt and Ashley, Dan, Caitlin, can you stand up um, and be hip for a second? Matt, can you represent the group? This is Matt. There you go, looking hip. Um, So their group started a couple of weeks ago, and they have a a brilliant but slightly disappointing compared to yours, Pete, uh, six people in their group. But not that we're about numbers. But eight, six, it's really good, both of you. But uh, Dan and Caitlin and Matt and Ashley, and I believe a couple of other people have been going to that. So, uh, and that's, I think you're only like two weeks in, so it's brilliant. If you are not in a community group, uh, we have a number of groups that meet around the city. We'd love to get you connected in, and uh, you can get more information at the Connect Desk. Uh, But thank you especially to those guys for taking the plunge and leading that. It's wonderful. Let's turn to the Word of God. Exodus chapter 20. Um, Exodus chapter 20. As we continue our series, uh, and actually our final uh, part of the series in the Ten Commandments, and um, we're just going to read one scripture, and then I've got a video and stuff to show you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And I also want to read another scripture from Luke, um, which hopefully should be appearing uh, on the screen as well. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. I'm going to struggle with this word the whole sermon, and you're going to really enjoy it, because I've been practicing all week. Covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, what an interesting statement. Please notice that. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink. Be merry, for God said to him, uh, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will, they be, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for him and is not rich towards God. Guys, shall I change microphones? Because I'm hearing all sorts of feedback, so I don't know if uh, I can use this one just as easily. So let me just unplug. Can you hear me there? Hello. There you go. Is that good? 
There you go, that's better. So let me just get rid of this. When I uh, started to pre- prepare the Ten Commandments series, uh, probably about four or five months ago now, even though we've not been working on it for four or five months, I slotted in the dates without actually realizing when this particular command would fall. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments and seeing how they're a design of life and how God has created these commandments and they're mirrored in the New Testament as well as not an end to themselves, but a way in which that we can reflect in some way the power of Jesus in our lives. And so this final command is the final one of the second segment of the Ten Commandments, uh, the final six, which have something to do with the way we relate to other people and what other people are. The first four commandments are the way that we relate to God himself, except the first and the final commandments are very, very similar. They're very similar in the what they're asking. I did not plan, and it was very convenient as I was preparing this, that it would land near the American Thanksgiving. I didn't plan that covetousness yes, would, not, uh, would, would land just before Christmas. I did not plan for it to land on the weekend of Black Friday. That was all in God's beautiful timing and scheme. I didn't start on this Sunday and work backwards just so I could preach about coveting on the weekend where I'm sure like many of you, you witnessed scenes on TV and on the web that brought a shadow over me for a few minutes. In fact, Some of my research brought tears to my eyes because it made me realize something very acute about human nature. I want to show you a video that I think um, illustrates what I'm talking about really well. There's purposely no sound because the person who was videoing it clearly didn't go to church very often. That's all I'm going to say. Even though going to church doesn't stop you cussing. You'll get what I mean. But you'll, 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 see, you'll see this video, and I think it sums up uh, a little bit from where I would like to jump off this morning into this command. Have we got that, Luke? Is that good? Okay. Actually, I don't know. Yes, you can still hear me. Just so you know, this is Urban Outfitters, and this is Black Friday at midnight. And they're just about to open the screen doors, and there they go. Look at them destroy the security things, and the screaming and the yelling is unbelievable. And I'm sure you've seen scenes like this, and uh, and much worse, fighting, clawing. I, I witnessed one guy literally grabbing other women by the scruff of their jackets and yanking them back so he could get to karaoke machines. And this is happening in our country. That's fine, Luke. There's this other picture as well that I want to show you that I think sums up this as well. There are people reaching out to get TVs, I think is a TV, on Black Friday. And as soon as I saw that, I immediately thought about these pictures that I've seen so often. If we can show the second one. Go back to the first one, please, Luke. TV, next one, box of eggs. And that, at that point, it made me think, what is it that is wrong in our society? Now, I, the thing with the commandments is it's very easy. You can, uh, you can move back to that. That's great. 
It's very easy with all the commandments for us to distance ourselves and stand in judgment on what people are doing and saying, well, you know what, that command doesn't affect me. Can I say this right from the start off? I could have chosen any sin at all, and its root is found in this command. I'm not saying every time we covet something and desire something, it ends up in sin. But I am saying that every sin starts with coveting. And I chose materialism and consumerism because I think that's an idol that grips our society. And and I'm not judging that. Well, yeah, I am. I am judging that. I think it's disgraceful, quite frankly. And it was interesting as well, there was another angle of the Urban Outfitters crowd where there's some signs outside of it and it says on it, Midnight Madness, because the, the corporate culture is they want to encourage that because, you know, our, our society, our environment, our culture relies and encourages in coveting. The idea that I have not got something and I want to get it. And I'm going to be willing to do whatever it takes in order to get it. The Midnight Madness. And the timing for this command is ironic, but really, I could start with any sin. I could start with any sin and say it begins with coveting. Because in the scripture, if we look at the scripture again in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, notice that God is very specific, and I underlined it there anything that is in your neighbor's, anything that is your neighbor's, you can covet. It doesn't have to be material uh, possessions, it can be lifestyle, it can be even values, it can be uh, your neighbor's partners, it can be somebody else's looks, it can be somebody else's intelligence. Anything that we do not have but you want desperately, is coveting. More accurately, coveting is when you don't want what God wants for you. Let me say that again. Coveting is when you don't want what God wants for you. And anything is included. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break apart this command because, again, I want us to be drawn into and realize that perhaps much of what we struggle with when it comes to our Christianity or much of what we struggle with in our lives and some of the issues and and things can really be anchored into this command. This command, if we fulfill it like the first command, if we got this right, then the other commands would actually look after themselves. So this command has got very much to do with where we are at. Because coveting is when you don't want what God wants for you. So what's the problem? What's the the big deal? The coveting problem, number one. Let me say first of all that the church has been guilty over the last 500 years and and longer of, of giving the impression that any kind of desire is wrong. Anything that we desire is wrong because the culmination of that desire can often be wrong. But the, 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 the idea of actually having desire is, is God's idea. There's nothing wrong with desire. On a very basic level, we desire food because we need to eat. Now, you can, you can, uh, you can amp that up into a sin because we just eat and eat and eat and eat. But the desire itself is not wrong. The problem is, is that desires have turned in the wrong direction. And instead of being satisfied in God as we were designed, we we go elsewhere. And Adam and Eve showed that really clearly. We talked in quite a bit of detail last week about Adam and Eve. But what they showed is that they had a desire, the, the apple in this case, or at least what the apple represented by the deception of Satan, 
and they desired something, but then that desire turned in on themselves, and sin was actually created. Martin Luther said this, that our basic human problem is that our hearts are curved in on themselves, curved in on ourselves, that, that those things that God has given us for us to enjoy and for us to look forward to and find pleasure in because we can thank him for it, we make them terminate on ourselves. So the thing itself becomes the ultimate value rather than the God that the thing is pointing to. And you can apply that to pretty much anything in our lives and certainly our culture. So let's go back to Black Friday. Is it wrong to want to get a good deal? No, some of you are really good at it. My wife is amazing at finding a good deal. And I know some of you are really into collecting coupons and being good stewards. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Until it turns in on itself and starts becoming obsessive and that becomes the thing that we worship. Instead of being thankful for what God has given us, God's given us a great discount or God has given us a good uh, way of saving money. Praise him. Isn't he wonderful for, for, for giving us and, and, and sustaining us and supplying our needs? It becomes the obsession itself. And then the, and you, you kind of uh, you extract that. The hockey stick is Black Friday where people are literally being stabbed in car lots outside Walmart for a parking space. That pregnant women are being trampled as they've been pushed in and over and ignored. People who are dying because they're being trampled on. These aren't things that I'm making up. This is all happening last Friday. And our culture encourages it because the basis of it is what Martin Luther said. Our basic human problem is our hearts have turned in on themselves. Misdirected desire is what coveting is. Misdirected desire. C.S. Lewis wrote this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant, is what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, we are made to love. We are made to enjoy something beyond ourselves. The greatest fulfillment, the greatest purpose, the greatest joy and peace as we found as we looked at these Ten Commandments is not found in ourselves. And yet our society has turned in on itself and ignoring the designer and the way we have been created to live. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, I gave an illustration, which I won't repeat, but I talked about when, you, when a, a fish is dying on the side of a river, and, and you, can, you can give this fish all sorts of different things that you think might help, but at the end of the day, it needs to go back into the water because it was created to swim. You know, and I, and I jokingly said, you know, you could give it alcohol, or you can give it another fish to hang out with, and maybe relationships is the answer to it dying. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's going to continually die, no matter how close it is to another fish, or how much alcohol it has, or, and I, you know, I joked around about drugs, and it needs to go back into the river. 
I had some irrigation issues over the summer, and Jesus referred to farmers often, and so I refer to my grass quite often, because my grass is getting better, and those of you who've been around long enough, you know that you're probably at a point now where you think this is an obsession, and, and my wife would probably agree in some aspects, so maybe I need to repent of that, but this year our grass was green and no dandelions, praise God, but what we had instead was just brown grass. Because my sprinkling system wasn't getting to where it all needed to be. It was slowly dying. I could give the grass all sorts of good things that I think might help. At the end of the day, it needs water and lots of it. See, we're too easily pleased, C.S. Lewis is saying, and Martin Luther is saying, and then God ultimately is saying, we're too easily pleased and satisfied with the things that aren't actually going to bring us life. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Jesus said, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And then if we can move on a little bit, then he said this really interesting statement after this man had built the barns in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says that this man said, soul. Is there anything wrong with barns? No. Is there anything wrong with having lots of barns for lots of grain? No. But the second that those barns become the object of our affection, and they become the actual anchoring of our soul, then Jesus says, your soul is going to be required of you fool. There's nothing wrong with wanting more because that is actually a God-given desire. But the wanting more, if it terminates on us, becomes sinful. And Jesus said that we must be guard ourselves. This is a continual leaning of our heart that we want to covet. Soul, you will be satisfied. Except we're not. The German philosopher in 1851, Schopenhauer, said this, Coveting is like, quote, seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. I watched images of people putting TVs into their shopping carts. Not just one TV, but five or six of them. And now maybe they were thinking, we'll sell them on eBay and make a profit. I don't know what their plan was. And again, this sin is not just anchored into consumerism. It is actually reflective in all different ways. Anything that we desire more of that leads to sin. So you can take any of the commandments, really, and you can anchor them into coveting. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Anything that we're putting ourselves first. But the more that we seek and the more that we attain, if that becomes our affection, then it doesn't matter how many TVs we have, we're still, like the philosopher said, going to be thirsty. Because the TV satisfaction will wear off incredibly quickly. Incredibly quickly. So Jesus said, be on guard. Be on guard. He's talking to his disciples. Friends, we need to be on guard. We need to protect our souls. How we do that, we're going to come to in a minute. But we need to be on our guard because being coveting creeps in. 
Coveting promises to deliver but fails. It traps. Coveting is deceitful. That It promises that you'll be satisfied and you won't. So let me just change our direction in thinking. So I don't want you to just anchor this into possessions. Anything that you wish you had that you do not have is coveting. If that becomes your obsession. Because remember, the definition I gave of coveting is coveting is not being satisfied with what God has given you and you want something else. So it might be that you're coveting being somewhere else and begrudging being where you are right now. Is that sin coveting? Because maybe what you have right now, biblically, and I would say this is the case because it is happening, is God's plan for you. And so we need to find a way of not continually looking to the other thing, which is coveting, but actually being satisfied and content with where we are at because that's God's determination for each one of us right now, no matter how grim and hard that might be. Our culture looks at things that other cultures would dismiss. We look at looks, we look at fitness, we look at possessions for sure, we look at uh, houses, we look at jobs, we look at ambition, we look at all these things and we long for more because it is based and encouraged by our culture. Be dissatisfied. Isn't it a constant in our culture? Look how rubbish you're doing. You need this. Look how ugly you are. You need to drink that. If you put this aftershave on, you're going to get all these women. Look at how awful you are by this. Do this. Go there. Be there. Go on that holiday. Drive that. Ride that. We need to teach our children, parents, that this idea of being content, and it's a battle, those of you who have children, it's a battle to continually encourage your children to be satisfied and grateful and content because they just want more and more and more. It's a reflection of the sinful heart that we are born with, but we need to teach our children that you are not what you drive because consumerism is identity based on your possessions. You are not what you drive. You are not what you wear. You are not what you or where you eat. You are not what you drink. You are not where you live. You are not who you date. You are not what perfume you wear. And it can get more and more ridiculous. And it starts. Have you seen um, the adverts for toys? One of the things I've noticed for toys is the stuff that we might buy for Jack, who's nine, like a Nerf gun, for example, that are just fun. They're actually being advertised on TV, and the people who are running around on the TV set are not nine-year-old boys. What age are they? They're young adults. They're good-looking, strapping young men running around doing commando roles through their front room playing Nerf. Because what they're doing is is they're creating an image in the mind of my little guy who wants to be like them. So his next thing is, is mom, dad, I I want that. See, it's creating this atmosphere of dissatisfaction. And it's ungodly if it creates this need of being dissatisfied. Well, I have, I need more, I need more, I need more. We need to teach our children to be careful, to be satisfied. We need to teach them to guard their hearts. One of the biggest things that has exploded in the last 10 or 15 years that heightens this is social media. For those of you on Facebook or Instagram or or, or any of those kind of social media engines, I say time and time again, there is nothing wrong in and of itself. 
But that has become a tool to create dissatisfaction because you go on there and go, look at how much fun they're having. Look at how good looking their partner is. Look at her new shoes. Look at that hairstyle. And the selfie thing has created this, this fake world that many of us are daft enough to believe is true. You know, other than the pictures of feet of which Instagram seems to be filled with and cats. If it wasn't for the cats, I don't think the internet would actually exist. And those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's good. That means you have actually not gone on the internet very much. Uh, the internet nearly broke last, um, was it Thursday? No, Friday. The internet nearly broke last Friday. Can anyone tell me why? Shout it out. You're ashamed to, aren't you? Star Wars. The trailer for the new Star Wars movie came out, and literally it broke iTunes for a bit because so many people were trying to download it. Those of you who are like going, is there a new Star Wars? You're fine. You don't need to worry about this next point. If you're going, what's Star Wars? We need to have coffee because you're offending me because <laughs> I am one of those people who downloaded it and watched it, I must admit. Yes. New lightsaber. Hello. Anyway, social media creates this atmosphere of dissatisfaction. We need to teach our children that things are not what they seem, no matter how big the smile is and how great the hairstyle is or how good-looking the girlfriend or the boyfriend is. It does not quench your thirst. See, these things are, are really just to glorify you. The things that we try and attain, are, they terminate on ourselves. We want to glorify something. We're created to glorify. We're created to worship. And so if that means we worship ourselves, then for a short amount of time, we're satisfied with that until we realize it just leaves us empty and it fails us and won't save us or forgive us. Or deal with the shame and the guilt and the issues that we may be carrying or the insecurities or the inferiorities that, that we feed our minds constantly with what could be and it creates a dissatisfaction with what God has decided we have. I'll confess, I have Instagram and I've stopped following pastors on it for this reason. Because they're always posting how wonderful their church and life seems to be. And I'm looking at 17,000 people worshipping at this church. And what does it create in me? Oh, that's so great. I'm so blessed. No, I'll be honest. It creates in me a tiny little inkling of, oh. And I started noticing this builds up. These smiley hats. I'm not criticizing the guys. I bless them. God bless them. Wonderful. I can say that now. But at that second, it creates this sense of dissatisfaction that leads me to coveting that is sinful. Because now I'm not satisfied with what God's doing. Do you see? Our culture and our environment encourages this. It will get you into debt. It will make you jealous. It will make you discontent. And it will create a sense where you're always chasing something. doesn't matter what, as long as you're chasing something. Secondly, external versus internal. Paul does something really interesting in Romans 7. Let me read you some scripture. He's actually reflecting on this particular command. 
He talks about coveting and, and covetousness. And, and then in Romans 7, verse 14, he says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. And then he carries on with the rest of the passage. And I'm sure you've read it where he's describing this tension where he knows what is right, but he's not able to do it. He knows what is wrong, but seems to lean towards it. But he starts off by saying the issue is not something that I can grapple with. The issue is spiritual. It says, for we know that this law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. How am I going to deal with this covetousness? The interesting thing with this command, it's the only command out of 10 that deals with the internal, not the external. All the other nine commandments are actually in reference to something that's outside of us. Even the first four commandments referring to God. This is a command that you could break and nobody knows. You can break this at one o'clock in the morning while you're on your iPhone and it's all dark and you're just flicking through pictures. You can break it because it's an internal issue. It's an issue of the heart. As Paul says, it's spiritual. The other commands are do this and don't do that. Put that down and don't even think about that. Do this and this will happen and this will be good. And and it's because of what Jesus did. But this one is internal. This one is an issue of the heart. This is not an external habit that even the best of us can try and crack by sheer will. This is an internal leaning of the heart. And you can't just tell the heart, stop. How many of you have tried really hard by sheer will to forgive somebody? Right, today, that's it. I'm going to forgive them. You can't. It's an internal issue of the heart. See, this command addresses the motives, the desires, and the passions of the heart. It's coveting. What your heart is most fixed upon. Remember, coveting is when you don't want what God wants for you. And Paul realized that the only way that he could actually live without this tension is Romans 8, where he says, but Jesus, Jesus is the one. He is the one who can give me a new heart. It's only possible through God. It's only possible to actually fulfill all these commandments that coveting is the core root of in Jesus. Because it's an internal issue of the heart, not an external issue of the will. So number three, the key thing is then, is wanting what God wants. See, when your father gives you a list of things, do this and don't do that, we should receive it as loving and wise counsel, because God the Father has proved himself to be a wise and loving God. He is shown affection to us. He has been merciful. He's been patient. He's been kind. He's demonstrated how loving he is. So when he says, look, you should not do this, we should lean in if we are wise children. In the same way, if we have our own children or if we think about our own parents, if our parents tell us to not do something or do something, then my hope is, is your parent is loving enough to say it because they care about you and love you and and want to protect you and protect other people. So if we're a child, a child that is walking in wisdom listens and leans in. And just like a child, when that child breaks the rules, it hurts you as a parent. It could hurt others. And so God is exactly the same. It hurts him. It says, God says in the Bible, he's grieved. It hurts It's disrespectful. And the other side of it, God enjoys giving us good gifts. 
See, God is generous and loving and kind and creative. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to not get hurt. He wants us to not hurt others. He wants us to live this design that he knows is joy-filled and purposeful and can only be found in him. So when we resist it, when we actually want something he doesn't want, it hurts because that is not the ideal. I'm going to say a statement that I really want you to listen to and consider If I was going to write a psalm after this statement, I would go, Selah, pause and think. What we do not have now is the best for us. Let me say it again and think about it. What we do not have right now is the best for us. Because God loves us so much, if it was the best for us, we would have it. If we could grasp that, If we could grasp the fact that God loves us so much that what we have is what we need right now because he loves us. And it would be unloving of him to give us everything we ask for. Because I tell you, if he'd taken my whole list and done what Bruce Almighty did in that movie and just said yes to every prayer. Do you remember that scene? And then there's absolute chaos ensues. What we don't have now is the best for us. He loves us that much. And the more intimately we know God, the more satisfied we will be with what we have. The more intimately we know God, the more satisfied we will be with what we have. Friends, even the painful stuff, even the difficult things, even the things that keep us awake at night, even the things that make us sorrowful, not just all the joy-filled things, but the things that actually break our heart a little bit. If we truly believed in a loving and caring and merciful, in-control God, then we would say, God, this hurts, and I know you know it hurts. It's painful, and I want you to change this. I want you to break in. But not my will, your will. Because remember Jesus in the the Garden of Gethsemane, he was facing not something that was only going to physically hurt, and it will, not something that was going to emotionally hurt, and it would, but something so cosmically large, so eternal. He was going to carry the weight of all our sin and shame, and all those that went before him who lived in faith, and all those that came behind him who believed, he was going to carry that weight, and he was crying, it says, sweats of, sweat of blood, which is physically, biologically possible, under so much strain, you can't actually break blood vessels in your forehead. And he's crying, and he said, but, Father, which was a, point of affection, not my will, but yours. Because he knew that the Father knew best. The more intimately we know God, the more satisfied and content we become. So covetousness would disintegrate because we would want what God wants for us. Imagine a miracle happens tonight and you wake up tomorrow morning feeling complete contentment. With everything that you have, you feel perfectly satisfied. Even the scars and the pain, you're like, oh. Because I wonder how many of you know that you've tried everything and you've done everything to try and relieve yourself of the turmoil that you're feeling. That if that miracle happened, you could wake up tomorrow morning and nothing has changed, only you. Then that would be as a result of realizing 
that God loves us. He knows the best for us. And even if it's painful right now, and even if it's hard right now, he loves and cares enough for us to know that's the best thing for us. These are heavy words. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing that. Oh, we love to sing it. But live it? Wow. See, Paul was able to say in Philippians chapter 4, in a prison cell, chained to Roman guards, he said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. What has he done? He has learned to do it. Not something given to him, not something that just miraculously appeared one morning, a nice little gift wrapped bow. Oh, contentment, now I feel it. He learned it. It was something he had to wrestle with. So contentment, the opposite of coveting, is wanting what God wants. So how do you get that? Finally, with a changed heart and a changed desire. See, the first and last commandments say this. This is my own words. Put God first. Make Him the number one attraction. Make Him the central thing that captures your imagination. Make His love the basis of your life. That's what the first and the final commandments are saying. Make him your number one attraction. Make him your number one affection. And then you'll live out the two through to nine. You'll be a person of integrity. You'll be a person who has love for your neighbor. You'll, have a person who, you'll be a person who can let go of their work and find soul rest on a Sabbath. You'll be a person who has dignity for life, that you have this high value on life, and you will not murder and everything that murder means. You'll have love for your neighbor. You won't steal. You won't deceive. You'll care for your parents. All these things will follow if you make him your number one attraction, if you learn to make him your number one attraction, if you have a heart fixed on God alone, you can live that life. And friends, we will be content. We will be content. So how? How do we do it? Glenn, give me a list of things to do. Okay. Here's how. See, in the Ten Commandments, it's actually buried in, in Deuteronomy 5 when it talks about the Ten Commandments as to how we do this. And what God does is he starts off by reminding the Israelites of the story. He said, listen, I came and I, re- I released you from Egypt. And then he talks about what happened at Mount Sinai. He said, I want a divine meeting with you all at Mount Sinai. And so they arrive at Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is covered in fire and fury. So what do the people do? They run. And I would probably be with them. Because I don't think we have any clue. This is not like the end of Indiana Jones and the, and, and the Lost Ark. If you remember that scene. Because I thought that's what it would be like when you met with God. I think it would be far worse. See, they're, they're facing this scene of fury and power and glory and fire. And what does Moses do? God reminds them this in Deuteronomy 5. Moses is the one that climbs the mountain. Moses is the one that stands in the gap. Moses is the one that faced the fire of God. And he spent time with God. And he comes back down the mountain with the commands of God. The how to live life. But he didn't return with the power to do it. He didn't bring salvation. He just brought this is what life should look like. You jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 12, you'll find a passage there that describes the scene exactly that Moses had. Except now the character is not Moses, it's Jesus. You see, Jesus stood on the mountain called 
Calvary. He faced the fury and the wrath and the fire of God. He stood in the gap. He represented you and me, just like Moses represented all of Israel. Jesus represented you and me when he died on the cross, except he didn't just come back with a whole list of things to do like Moses did. He came back with salvation and power and life change. And he said this, you believe in me. You make me Lord of your life. And all things will follow. He was the one that decided to do it. He was the one that chose you. He was the one that initiated love and care towards you. He was the one that went on to Calvary and and died on the tree for you instead of you. So that not only you could be forgiven of your sins, but you could have, the Bible says, a changed heart. You see, just like the Israelites, we need to grasp the story. Grasping the story of the gospel will result in contentment. And contentment is the opposite of coveting. And coveting is the root of sin. So if we grasp the gospel, if we consider the gospel, there's a passage of scripture here as I just bring this to a a close. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, I found this, I was so excited. 1 Peter 1 verse 10 through to 12. It says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. See, the angels have a perspective of God's mercy, love, and kindness that we don't have. And Peter's talking here about the gospel, and he's saying the gospel is something the angels long to look. So this is the bit I got excited because I'm a preacher. You're like going, I don't see why he got so excited about this, unless he really likes angels, which I do. I'd love to see one one day. Maybe I have. There might be one here right now in secret. The bit that I got excited about were those three words at the end, long to look, because it's the same phraseology It's the same root as covet. The angels are coveting the gospel. So instead of coveting the possessions and the things that God has given us to make much of him, they covet God. So they have an open hand. We can have an open hand on the things of life because we have a closed fist and we're coveting the one who truly is worthy of our coveting, which is Jesus Christ. See, they fix their attention. They long to look into the gospel. They, 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 this, this idea of looking into what the gospel is, what the story is, will create contentment in you. Because you'll realize that you're loved and you're cared for. You'll realize that Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for you so that you do not have to pay the sacrifice. The more you press into the gospel, the more thankful and content and knowledgeable you become about God. And the more you know him, the more you realize that what you have in life is his plan for you. And the more content you will become. And you'll be able to hold the other things with an open hand. And then the other commands start slotting in. It's because of Jesus and the gospel. Fall, friends, fall in love with the gospel. Fall in love with the story of Jesus. This Christmas, as we come to Christmas, read Luke. Read the story of the gospel. Not just the first bit. All of it. Read it. Soak yourself in it. Read about it. Sing about it. Pray it through. Go about your day breathing thanks to God for the gospel. What Jesus Christ did for you. 
When you're with your friends, talk about it. And in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, this is God speaking through his prophet. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, this heart transplant is exactly what happens when we come to know Jesus. It's the David crying, creating me a clean heart. He removes the old heart, curved in on itself, worried and concerned and never content, self-obsessed and selfish. and gives you a new heart. He takes our messy, malfunctioning, messed up hearts and replaces them with his. So we can actually, this is not pipe dreams, we can actually wake up tomorrow morning with a sense of deep satisfaction in life. doesn't matter what your bank account might look like, what your business looks like, what's going on with your kids or your work. Or anything going on, you can be satisfied because you know God loves you enough to send his son to die on the cross for you. Jesus is in the business of changing desires and hearts. It's beautiful. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays for his church. And he prays that they, their hearts would be enlightened, that they might know the hope to which they are called. It's called one of the pastoral prayers. It's beautiful. You should, you should read it. It's, it's a wonderful prayer. And it's a prayer rooted in the, in the awareness that only God can change hearts. This is the Apostle Paul. He could not make the, the church in Ephesus do anything or be anything. Only God. And he prayed, change their hearts, Lord, that the eyes of their hearts be enlightened. So as I was coming to the end of my preparation here, I thought, what could I pray over the church that God in his wisdom has counted me worthy to lead, what could I pray? Could I, I could pray that they do not steal. I could pray that they do not murder. I could pray that they would hold life, the Imago Dei, with, with sacred hands. I could pray all those wonderful things. And then I thought, really, the most important thing I could pray is this. Let's pray. My prayer Willow Park Church, is that you would covet the gospel of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you would ponder, study, talk about, and sing about the greatest story with unapologetic passion. My prayer is that everything else in your life would appear empty to you in comparison to his love for you. I pray that your hearts would be changed, rearranged, reoriented towards him. And that in that, my prayer is that you would find freedom and would be joyous and enjoy all the benefits that God has given to us in his creation to make much of him and for us to enjoy. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that covets you. That like Paul, we would echo his words and he said, that I might know him more. 
that we would live in the beautiful tension of being content and satisfied, yet always striving to want to know you more. Nothing else, just you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we worship together as a church and as we move into Advent and towards Christmas, Lord, I pray for a revelation. I pray for contentment. I pray for gratitude. I pray, Lord, for a light to burn in every one of us that no matter where we go, you will be seen and you will be heard. Lord, that we would make much of you. And Lord, that we bow in the knowledge that all this is not only possible because of you, Lord, but is initiated by you. That you are the one that is wooing and calling to us. Father, I pray today that we would hear and follow that call. Thank you, Jesus.